Our sermon text this morning is Genesis chapter 10. We're going to look at the whole chapter and read the whole chapter. Before we read that, we will pray and seek the Lord's blessing on his word. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we who are your people sit here now under the hearing of your word. We pray, Father, that you would bless your word to us, that we would be granted meek and humble hearts that would receive your word for that which it truly is, the very words of God. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 10, starting at verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech and Tiris. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath and Tagama. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim and Dodanim. From these the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabtah, Ramah and Sabtika. The sons of Ramah, Sheba and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad and Kalneh in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ur, Calah and Resen between Nineveh and Calah, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Neftuhim, Pethrusim, Kazluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvadites, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasher. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpashad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Getha, and Mash. Arpashad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Sheleph, Hazamaveth, Jerah, Hadaram, 
Uzul, Dikwa, Obel, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Amen. May God bless his word to us. After the flood, in Genesis chapter 9 at verse 1, we read, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And what we see in Genesis chapter 10 is how that commandment which God gave, which we could also read in a way as a promise, there's a promise there of fruitfulness, there's a promise there of succeeding generations, that commandment slash promise, we see how it was fulfilled, how God took eight people, remember we're told, let me just reorganise my notes, I forgot to put something in front of me, there we go, we're told in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, that eight people were saved and brought safely through the water. How God taking eight people repopulated the earth. I once again remind you, somehow or other, go back far enough. We all share common ancestry. You might have to go back as far as the sons of Noah themselves. But somehow or other, we all share common ancestry. There is one and one only human race. Skin colour is skin deep. It's just a fact. Furthermore, skin colour is more or less reliant entirely upon that region of the earth where a person has has, um, been born after successive generations exposed to the particular climate of the area in which they lived. It's as simple as that. There is one and one only human race. It started from Adam and it was narrowed down to Noah and then from Noah it spread out into all the earth. You say, is this scientifically possible? It's perfectly possible. Basically, if Noah were a man of somewhat olive skin, all the possible colour variations that you see in the earth today can easily have come from Noah. It's that simple. It's not even a scientific mystery. It's interesting, we, as I've already mentioned, we read in 1 Peter 3.20, it's interesting that none of Noah's sons, and they must have had wives, there's Noah, his wife, he has three sons, they have wives, that's how you get eight people in all. None of them had children during the time of the flood. I guess that would be the providence of God. But after the flood... They are to fill the earth. They are to be fruitful and peoples spread out upon the earth. God's great story, and when I say story, I don't mean fairy story. Story or narrative of redemption continues. God's great narrative of the progression of humanity towards his promised saviour 
continues. And the enmity spoken of in Genesis chapter 3, we will see, as we look carefully at our passage, continues. There is a seed of the woman. There is a seed of the serpent. The warfare continues. The division continues. It's very interesting. It talks of Peleg or Peleg. Peleg, how do you want to say it? Looking at Genesis chapter 10, verse 25, to Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided and his brother's name was Joktan. Now, Peleg, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a play on words there. It's the same three consonants in the Hebrew language that mean literally divided. And so they say, for in his days, the earth was divided. As we move on through the scripture, we will see that it's through Peleg that we get to Abraham. It's through Peleg that we get to Abraham. That's the promised line. The line that has, as it were, the promise of the gospel. The line that God is dealing with in a special providential way, preserving that line, strengthening that line, building that line up for the coming of the Saviour. And notice that we're told that in the days of Peleg, the earth was divided. Now, I think that's a reference primarily to the Tower of Babel. The earth was divided. The peoples were divided. They were divided in their languages. It's also a reference, I think, to the division of the earth physically. I don't know if you've ever seen any of the the big time-lapse maps, but they can sort of put it together like a jigsaw puzzle. It's possible now, and many, many geologists believe, though they believe it happened over a far faster, far longer, slower time period than I would believe using the Bible as my guide for time. They believe that all the earth was once one massive supercontinent and from there it has been broken into pieces and the, and the continents have slowly moved apart and sometimes closer together, etc. Well, I believe in the time after the flood, that happened actually quite quickly. The nations were divided by languages, the people were divided, the earth was divided and you got continents, the earth roughly more or less as we know it today. But Peleg, in the times of Peleg, the earth was divided. Well, we're told in Scripture that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And throughout chapter 10, what you need to remember is that Noah was alive. You get the numbers, you know, you start write write all your numbers down on a piece of paper, start adding things up, subtracting things, working it all out. Noah was alive even at the time that Abraham was born. Noah was alive as all these generations were spreading out upon the earth. Think now. We know that Noah found grace or favour in the sight of God. The scripture tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Do you think he stopped preaching when the ark got parked at the top of Mount Ararat? Do you think he shut up shop? Because we could imagine that. You know, the, the Genesis itself after Noah basically speaks prophetically concerning his own children, it doesn't record any more words from Noah. But Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And I just can't imagine that a preacher of righteousness just ever ceased being a preacher of righteousness. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. 
But 350 years, there was a preacher of righteousness upon the earth and his name was Noah. We know that the godly line comes to us, the line of the Saviour comes to us through Peleg. And in the days of Peleg or Peleg, the earth was divided. Well, what's one of the ways that God divides the earth? He's doing it now. Isn't he? God divides the earth according to the preaching of the word. The word of grace, the word of salvation. I wonder if Peleg, we're not told, but I think it's a reasonable speculation. He is the one who carries the promises, the godly line that leads to Abraham, that leads to Jesus. Was Peleg a preacher of righteousness? He heard the words of Noah and he himself preached righteousness. He believed the words of Noah. And in his days, the world was divided. Those who believed, those who did not, I think it's reasonable. I think that's reasonable. Anyway, we're looking today at four major points. I'm not going to um, try and go verse by verse through um, a table of names. Four major points. I'll give you the four points. Point one, the unwritten rule. The unwritten rule? Yep, what is that? It's in the providence of God. Every time you read a table of the generations, the table of the nations, always remember, between every statement of fact, in the providence of God. We'll look at that a bit more in a minute. Second major point, according to the word spoken by Noah, all that we read in chapter 10 is a fulfilment of the prophecy spoken by Noah in chapter 9. Third major point, the conflict, the enmity continues. The war continues. We have Nimrod and the Canaanites. Fourth major point, the promise is maintained. The promise, there will be a coming saviour who will stamp upon the head of the serpent. The promise is maintained through the line of Shem and Peleg. They become what is called the Semites. Did you know that? You know, there's a, there's a word. It's often used. It's an accusation usually these days. You're anti-Semitic. If someone says you're anti-Semitic, it means you hate the Jews. You're anti-Semitic. That word Semitic, Semitic, however you want to say it, goes back to Shem. It's a variation of the name Shem. You're anti-Shemite. So it's still a word that's current in our language today. The promise is maintained. Okay, let's look at the first point. The unwritten rule in the providence of God. There's a... um, There's a theological viewpoint. It's been popular at times and less popular at other times, but it's been been around. It's heretical. It's called deism. Deism. What is it? It's basically the belief that God is like a watchmaker who starts things happening, winds up the watch, and then steps away, and after that has nothing to do with that which he has created. You know, or another way to put it is... um, He uh, gets the car to the top of the hill and pushes it and then lets it roll and whatever happens, happens. Deism. It is a heresy. 
God is intimately involved in everything that happens upon the earth to do with people, to do with his image bearers. In the providence of God, someone finds a wife. In the providence of God, that wife bears children. In the providence of God, those children grow into adulthood and find wives and etc., etc., and on it goes. In the providence of God, that which was spoken of in Genesis chapter 9 was fulfilled. All of this is under God's providence, according to God's ordination. In the providence of God. God knows all people and all people know of God. Know of God. I'm not saying all people know God. To say that someone knows God is to imply a personal relationship. The only way to have a personal relationship with God is through faith. It is through faith now in his revealed son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is to know God. But all people know of God. Let's just refresh that in our minds. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Reading at verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Everyone ever born, every single image-bearing human being, every offspring of Adam and Noah ever born knows of God. There is a revelation of God that is made to every single human being. They know of God. Now, this knowledge is not saving knowledge. It is not saving knowledge. Saving knowledge requires that we know the promises of God and that we know God in our time as he has revealed himself in the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Before he came, he revealed himself in the promises of the Saviour and to trust in the promises of God. That's to know God, to have a personal relationship with God. But everybody knows of God. That's why it's an almost meaningless thing, my friends, when someone tells you they believe in God. When someone tells you they believe in God, well, okay, it's, it's kind of nice to hear. It's, it's good to know that they've got some kind of um, knowledge of God and that they're not totally denying it. They're not totally suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. But to know of God is not necessarily to be saved. This general knowledge that God reveals to all mankind, it's not saving knowledge, it's actually condemning knowledge. Condemning knowledge. People often like to ask the questions of evangelical Christians. What about the poor innocent native in far off, name some country, Jeborobria, no such place I know, it's a stupid name. What about the poor innocent native in far off, Name some country who never, ever heard about Jesus. Is that native under judgment? 
Answer, simply, yes. Why? Well, first of all, they're not innocent. They're not innocent. According to whatever law of righteousness that they know, they are not innocent. They don't keep their own moral standards. So there's no innocent native anywhere. Furthermore, this general revelation that God himself has sent to humanity and to every single person, when they ignore it and harden their heart against it, it condemns them. We read earlier in Acts chapter 17, Paul spoke of God letting himself be known by all of humanity for the purpose that all of humanity could feel their way towards God. You see, what should be the response of any human being to the knowledge of God that is revealed when the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork? What should be the response of any human being? They feel their way toward God. What is the response? Apart from the grace of God, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Consciences are hardened, hardened. People are hardened in their sin and given over to their sin. The unwritten rule that is there in Genesis chapter 10, it's not explicitly written, but it's there, my friends, is that for every generation and every statement, we should insert mentally in the providence of God, according to the ordination of God, according to the will of God, as God would have it. All of these things are according to God's will. Second point, God's will according to the word spoken by Noah. God's will according to the word spoken by Noah. We read it earlier. Remember God said, I mean, God said through Noah, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. What we read here is that these things were fulfilled. Noah spoke by the Spirit of God and things were done. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. Reading from verse 4, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, herald, preacher, proclaimer, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormented tormented in his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Noah was a herald of righteousness. 
In the introductory comments, I already said that, but now you've read it in the scripture. I want you to think of what I'm saying. This expansion of humanity out into the world after the flood was not apart from the word of God, but it was accompanied by the word of God. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And so amongst these families, tribes, nations, there are those who heard the word and believed and those who did not. Noah, through God, spoke about how this was all to unfold and that's what we read. So third point, the warfare, the conflict, the enmity is resumed. We find that in the story of Nimrod and the Canaanites. The enmity is resumed. God cursed the line of Ham. Genesis chapter 9, verse 25. Cursed be Canaan, a son of Ham. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And from the, from the line of Ham comes this man called Nimrod. Ham fathered Cush. We find that in verse 6. And then in verse 8 we read, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. Genesis chapter 10, verse 8. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Mighty. Three times he's called mighty. Now, my friends, here we see the beginning once again of idolatry. The beginning of idolatry. You might think that calling Nimrod mighty was something of a um, positive description, but that is not necessarily so. Remember in the commandments, the Lord said, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the way you read this here that is spoken of Nimrod. Nimrod, a mighty hunter, what was his position? Before the Lord. And the people, all they can say about Nimrod is, he is great, he is wonderful, he is mighty. The mighty Nimrod. His name could well mean, let us rebel. It sounds a bit like that in the Hebrew. Let us rebel, let us be rebels. And the phrase that says Nimrod was a mighty hunter, you know, some of the scholars say it could be read something of a tyrant, a hunter of men, a rebel, a hunter of men. He was powerful. He was strong. He was a rebel. Note that it tells us that he founded cities and he founded a kingdom. Looking at verse 10, the beginning of his kingdom was, what's that name there? The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Think about that name, Babel. Does it sound like another one that you've read in the scripture if you think about it? Who were the long-term enemies of the people of God in the Old Testament? The Babylonians, the Babylonians. And in the book of Revelation, where it describes the judgment of evil upon the earth, 
an evil, wicked kingdom of evil, wicked religion, unclean in every way. Who gets cast into the ocean like a stone cast into the sea? What does the book of Revelation call that nation, that kingdom? Babylon. Babylon. Nimrod was the founder of the people of God for the rest of, I'm sorry, Nimrod was the founder of the enemies of the people of God for the rest of scriptural revelation. Nimrod set up a kingdom beginning with Babel and the Babylonians spiritually are the enemies of God from that moment forth, even now, right through the through to the end of this spiritual age, this wicked, evil age. The Babylonians are the enemies of God. He built cities. Now, it was a fair while back that we were at Genesis chapter 4, but turn back to Genesis chapter 4 and just notice something about another evil man. Cain. The murderer, the killer of his brother, the evil one. Verse 17, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Cain, the murderer, was a city builder. And remember, the scripture tells us God says that he would mark Cain. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Back at verse 15. Now, I'm, it's a different subject. I'm not going to spend a long time arguing this point out. But if you want me to tell you what I believe the mark that was placed on Cain was, it was the mark of false religion, idolatrous worship. And I believe that the mark of Satan's people from that time forward has always been false religion and idolatrous worship. Right forward through into the book of Revelation and the mark of the beast. As I said, let's not argue about it at this moment, but God placed a mark on Cain. Cain immediately goes off father's children and founds a city named after his own son. So now go to Nimrod. Turning back into Genesis chapter 10. The beginning of his kingdom. So we start to get some places. What were some places in his kingdom? Babel, Erech, Akkad and Kalnair in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. Where did um, Jonah go to preach? These people are accursed in a way. They are accursed. This is not the promised line. This is the line from which the enemies of God are born. But just remember, in judgment, God remembers mercy. Where did Jonah preach? And where was there a revival? And where did the people turn to God? Jonah preached to Nineveh. He preached to the Ninevites. But it was a wicked and evil city and it was founded by Nimrod. Nimrod founded a kingdom. Nimrod was mighty before the Lord, though the scripture says, you shall have no other gods before me. I think I'm I'm sort of taking an implication here. Nimrod was one of those sort of godlike emperors whom people worshipped and gave glory to. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. 
Babylonia, the evil place. So the conflict is resumed. The enmity that was spoken of in Genesis chapter 3, if you just want to have a quick look back there, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Here it is. In the days of Noah, in the days of Noah, after the flood, the one who survived the flood, the one who survived the judgment of God through the grace of God, the one to whom, through whom, to whom all of these peoples trace their genealogy. Noah is everybody in this book. He's, you know, he's his father, grandfather, great grandfather, great great grandfather, whatever you want to say. They, it all goes back to Noah. Noah, the preacher of righteousness, yet even so, even so, the warfare begins. Seeing is believing. Isn't that what they say? Show me facts and I'll believe. No, friends, it's, that's a lie. It's a lie from the beginning. Okay, seeing is not believing. Believing is believing. Faith is born by God, by a work of the power of the Holy Spirit of God. It doesn't matter how many facts you lay before an unbeliever, they won't just believe because it's a fact. Noah was alive. Probably, you know, imagine, I wonder if the house that Noah lived in was built from the wood of the ark. I don't know that for a fact, but why waste the wood? You've got it there, you've cut it to shape. Noah was alive and already the people refused to believe and set themselves up in rebellion to God. Fourth point, the promise maintained. We're looking here at the final family group. Notice at verse 21, chapter 10, verse 21, now Moses gets to speaking of Shem, yet Shem was Noah's firstborn. Why? Because he's um, introducing us to the fact that from here on in, in, in genealogical terms, we're going to be sticking with the Semites. We're going to be sticking with the descendants of Shem because that gets us to Abraham and Abraham gets us to Moses and Moses gets us to David and David gets us to Jesus. So we're following the line of Shem. And so though it's mentioned last, it's actually the most important line, the most important family line mentioned. Shem, the promised maintained. Chapter 9, verse 26, Noah said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Well, what does that mean? Well, if the Lord is the God of Shem, Shem is a servant of the Lord. Shem is a servant of Yahweh, for Yahweh is his God. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. So now we're looking at the deadly line. I'm sorry, at the faithful line. Notice that Shem here does not rule over any great section of the earth. The mighty one is Nimrod, the evil one. Nimrod's the evil one. In this, in this, um, in this chapter of the book of Genesis, Nimrod is the anti-hero. He's the anti-Christ type figure. He's the tyrant that rules over cities and, a, and an empire. The promise goes with Shem, yet we're not told that Shem rules over an empire. We're told that his people lived in a certain territory, but the mighty ones are the evil ones. I mean, has, has much changed in the world today? You know, who gets all the attention? 
Who do the cameras turn to? Who, who, ha, who, who has the ear, as it were, of millions upon billions of people? Are they the righteous ones? Not at the moment. Not at the moment. Shem. The promise of, Mo, of Noah was that the Canaanites would be the servants of Shem. That it's a long time before that's delivered. It's a promise. It's true. It's going to happen. God's people will have the victory. God's people will put their feet on the neck of their enemies. But there's much struggle. There's much warfare between Genesis chapter 10 and the ultimate victory of God's people. God's people are victorious along the way. They have victories in the Exodus. They have victories as Joshua conquers the promised land. There's even a victory as Jesus is resurrected from the dead. Victory, victory, victory. But to God's people, struggle, warfare, enmity, struggle in the world. What did Jesus say to Pilate? If my kingdom were of this world, my people, they'd take up weapons, they'd fight, they'd conquer by sheer force. We're still waiting in a way for the day. I mean, we've got it. This is, the, this is sort of, um, this is the um, Christian life, as it were. We're caught between two things. We have the victory now. We have life in Christ Jesus now. We have victory over the world in Christ Jesus right now. We have victory over the Canaanites, if you want to use that word, or if you want to use the word the Babylonians, or if you want to use the word the Antichrist. We have all of these victories now in Christ Jesus. No matter what comes our way, that which we have been given in Christ Jesus cannot be taken from us. Not a hair of our head will be lost. That's the promise of Jesus. It came just after he told us we'd be betrayed, persecuted, flogged and even put to death. Betrayed, persecuted, flogged, put to death and not a hair of your head will be lost. We have the victory right now. We're waiting for the victory to be publicly declared. We're waiting for the day when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's absolutely certain and sure we haven't got the faintest doubt of it. Our God rules and reigns and righteousness will have the ultimate victory and evil will be shown up for what it is. And the evil one will be placed under our feet, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 16. We have the victory now. We wait for the fulfilment of victory. Well, even then, in Genesis chapter 10, Though God's people did not have the explicit gospel that we have these days. They couldn't turn to Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. They couldn't turn to the book of Acts and the, and the letters of the Apostle Paul. Even so, God's people had victory in God, though the warfare went on all around them. The promise continues. The promised line is preserved. From Shem will come Peleg. From Peleg will come Abraham. From Abraham will come the promises. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. 
The Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Galatians that we are indeed counted as being children of Abraham. Why? Because we share the faith of Abraham, faith in the promises of God. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans that not all who are descended from Abraham are children of Abraham. It's not biological. It's not genealogical. Just because these people are in the promised line, we do not assume that they must therefore be saved. And concerning the Canaanites, just because they're in the line that was cursed, we must not assume that they cannot be saved. Remember, Jonah preached to the Ninevites, who were Canaanites. The gospel goes out to all the world and all the nations in the world, and all who put their faith in Jesus are saved. There is only one humanity traced back through Noah to Adam. And that one humanity throughout all the earth, throughout all the ages, has one problem. There is one thing that separates humanity from God. In the book of Isaiah, we would read that your sins have placed a division between you and your God. Sin. Sin. And there's only one solution to sin. The Saviour, Jesus, Son of David, Jesus, Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. By no other name can a man be saved. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. All must honour the Son as they honour the Father. So the Gospel's here. In the table of nations, in the list of names, the Gospel's here. God never leaves his people without his word. God's people always have his Gospel to believe and God always keeps preaching his Gospel to his people. It's a communion service this morning. Joel's about to lead us in communion after we sing our next hymn. What's happening? Joel's going to read to you from the Holy Scriptures. He's going to remind you that this bread is my body broken for you. That this wine is my blood shed for you. For the establishment of the covenant. My friends, the gospel's being preached as the elements are being handed out. The gospel's being preached as Joel reads to you from the Holy Scriptures. Again and again and again, God has the gospel preached to his people because he knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. He knows that we are forgetful. He knows that we are weak. He knows that his sheep, and a sheep is not a strong nor a powerful animal. In terms of domesticated farm animals, it's just about the weakest. It's just about the thickest. It's the one that needs more care. He knows that his sheep need to hear the shepherd's voice. And so he ensures that his people hear that voice. And so, my friends, we're here today and the gospel is preached This is the most blessed place we could be. We're here in the presence of God under the blessings of God. We are God's people. 
Don't worry that there's a Nimrod somewhere in the world establishing himself as a tyrant, threatening death and destruction. He will do that. Let him do so. We are the people of God under the preaching of the word of God. And if we are the people of God, we hear the gospel of God and it strengthens us and it carries us all the way home. I'm almost taking Joel's words from him. I hope he doesn't mind. It says, the Apostle Paul says, we do these things till he comes again. Do you hear the promise there? Do you hear the promise? He is coming again. And until he comes again, we get the gospel preached to us again and again and again and we get fed upon the very body of the Lord Jesus Christ. We get fed upon Christ our Saviour until he comes again. And so, my friends, there's always going to be a Nimrod. But, my friends, there is certainly a Saviour. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he brings us all the way home to the presence of God our Father. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do give you thanks for this day, for your word, the Holy Scriptures. We do give you thanks that you feed us upon your gospel, that we indeed are your people, your sheep, that you have set over us the good shepherd who will never allow his sheep to stray. Father, please. I ask for Joel's sake now that you would bless him as he leads us in the communion service and that you would bless this meal to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.